Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. 25 years ago, Stathis Gourgouris, a professor of classics, English and comparative literature in Columbia University, published his seminal work Dream Nation, Enlightenment, Colonization and the Institution of Modern Greece, in which he applied the tools of psychoanalysis and post-colonial theory in modern Greek history. In the following episode, on the week of the bicentennial of Greek independence, Stathis Gourouris talks about the fragmented dreams of different groups that came together to imagine modern Greece, Europe's need for a Greek state to connect their own nations with classical antiquity, as well as the remnants of Orientalism that still shape the European gaze towards Greece today. This is the Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Orespo Dimitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode and edited by Stefanos Kostadinidis. Stathis Gourgouris, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> happy to have you here too. Uh, so how is DreamWork involved in producing the nation? Is it a metaphor on how national identities are created, or maybe a direct description of the mechanics of this process? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's probably both. Um, I think uh, any attempt, of course, to describe dream work in terms of mechanics uh, probably fails, uh, because it's not... Uh, uh, dream work is uh, something that uh, that is not something that can be fully analyzed. Even even uh, Freud himself would say that, you know. Uh, but there is also a certain metaphorics to it. Um, I guess the idea is to think of identities, or national identities specifically, in this case, uh, how they you know to think of how they are created beyond the very typical factors that we usually uh, account for which would be language, religion, ethnic uh, characteristics, history, and so on, uh, to think of something that's more subtle and maybe um, um, something that touches on, on the, what now in these days is called affect, you know, in the affect of peoples, the, the uh, sort of uh, 
more psychological characteristics perhaps but it is also uh, as a metaphor uh, a reference to uh, what we call the social ima imagination how societies imagine themselves and their adversaries how they imagine their history um, how they imagine their their future uh, so it's it's uh, it's both I think So this imagination is uh, created by bringing together disparate fragments that seem unrelated until the point where imagination comes in. So this national imagination is the narrative between language, religion, um, and other similar factors? Not quite the narrative. Uh, although it does provide a narrative, I think that it's always the, ultimately, uh, to the degree that nations uh, must write their own histories, Um, uh, and certainly deal with histories written about them by others, uh, there is a narrative involved, a narrative component. But um, the social imagination, to my mind at least, is more something um, more poetic than narrative. And I mean um, poetic uh, in the literal sense, you know, as it would be understood in the ancient Greek meaning of uh, pieces, you know, poesis, um, which is not just simply poetry, but... but um, the creation of forms, oftentimes, in fact, forms that um, might be intangible or even, uh, let's say, unprecedented, new forms. Uh, and uh, that kind of creative capacity is what makes the social uh, imaginations uh, work so important in every society, regardless, uh, and not even pertinent to n n the nation itself, which is, which is just a form of, of uh, social organization that happens at a specific point in time, uh, certainly has not existed uh, forever. Uh, and, forever. Do you, and do you equate this form with the substance of the nation? Is it, I mean, is this the form uh, the only way that we can perceive a nation? Well, that's also good and a hard question. In some ways, yes, in this book, in any case, I was interested in, I was interested in the form. Um, I was interested in how n the nation as a form emerges um, in in history as a real thing, of course. But um, because uh, my point is to always underline that nations are not, you know, uh, transcendental entities, um, you know, the supernatural or or um, you know they don't they they or eternal. Uh, that they are uh, historical forms, they emerge under specific conditions, like all historical forms, and uh, then they um, have a certain kind of uh, trajectory, a certain kind of life, which uh, m which may end, because um, there's nothing in history that is, in fact, immortal. So um, it is about form in that respect very much, um, uh, and, and, and maybe even, uh, or at the same time, about formation. Uh, how uh, once the nation form appears, uh, how do different uh, nations emerge um, um, by boring or shaping this form? Uh, and uh, again, always in specific situations. And then um, Greece becomes a, a kind of example uh, that I am investigating, you know, the as I call the institution of modern Greece. And by which, of course, I mean the creation of the of Greece as a nation um, in in the 19th century, not Greece uh, in its presum presumed, uh, again, eternity, which obviously I'm contesting. 
<laughs> yeah, this eternity will actually uh, occupy our conversation later on. But for now, I'd like to ask you a somewhat um, uh, simple, though I think kind of tricky question. Uh, when we speak of a dream, I, I think that even psychoanalysis would uh, uh, presuppose the existence of a dreamer. Now, uh, who was it that had this dream in the case of modern Greece? And uh, I assume it was a collective dreamer. But who was it? <laughs> well, yes, of course, you're, you're asking the right questions. Uh, um the there is i have to just as a parenthesis or introduction to my answer i should say that i i acknowledge that there is a a little bit of danger in uh, moving from uh, a kind of uh, freudian um framework of um of dreaming or interpretation or analysis which is always a pertinent to a specific individual uh, uh, for moving from that to something that, uh, you know, pertains to the collective or, you know, the uh, society as, uh, at large. So uh, keep that in mind. I mean, I'm aware of that. And, 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 uh, and I don't believe that there can be a direct transfer. So I'm interested in, in, in certain of the structural elements that Freud uses when he talks about dream work uh, and so on. So uh, the, the, the dreamer in, in a national dream, of course, is not, a, not one. Uh, it is always a plurality, and, and, um, and it is a heterogeneous one, meaning that uh, not everyone might have quite the same dream. Um, and that creates that might create tensions, uh, and and even uh, you know at the extreme uh, civil conflicts. But um, in the case of Greece, it, it is a kind of multiple one. Again, um, as we know, this is not not something. Uh, it's actually very very well established. There are different classes uh, of of Greeks in different places, all the way from Odessa to. Uh, to Vienna and and to Paris, um, as well as as the mountains of uh, of uh, Rumeli and uh, and, uh, and the Peloponnese, uh, different classes of people, different uh, um, people who spoke different languages. Many of the uh, Greek revolutionaries spoke only Albanian. Um, they were not all Christians, um, and so on and so forth. Plus, you have the extra thing, uh, the dream of Greece. Um, uh, which is f by non-Greeks, by 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 uh, people external to Greece, which has its own, uh, how can I put it, not only its own logic, but its own uh, motivation, and perhaps even its own self-interest. And we obviously we'll have to talk about that. I'm talking about Philhellenism. Um, but in any case, the national dream. Then um, that's how it, that's how one might say it emerges, and that is uh, something that happens in. In all national independence situations, when a certain society feels that um, uh, it deserves to, it, it has a right to self-determination, and um, obviously uh, some vision uh, of what that would be exists in people's minds, and then once <clears throat> that's established, uh, which is always a, a, a political event. Um, then uh, the dream doesn't doesn't stop. I mean, it 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 continues, and it is uh, oftentimes it's not just simply renewed. That that is essential to it. It must always be renewed, and uh, rituals such as the bicentennial, which we, we were just having, uh, are very much part of these kinds of rituals of renewal. But it also uh, must be reconfigured. Um, uh, according again to all kinds of circumstances. 
it can involve um, uh, expansion. It can, it can involve conquest. It can involve, um, uh, you know, various kinds of political and sociological and ideological uh, recalibrations. Uh, as, and as I said, it's it's always because it's plural. It's always um, intention, a kind of internal uh, tension. So, um, in that sense, it's it's complicated to speak about who the dreamer is in any. Uh, a singular way that it would be identifiable. That's that's wh- that's where we move from the, let's say, theoretical uh, work or the, or the psychoanalytic theoretical work to the historical work, where we really need to look at the specific um, events and things that happen uh, on the ground. Though I'm guessing this limit is not between the two is not really clear. Yes, it's not clear, uh, and I don't mind that. Um, I talk about that, and that's actually not just about Dream Nation. That's all is involved in everything I do. You know, I I, I always work both philosophically and historically uh, in, in in practically everything, and uh, the limit is not clear. Um, they do intersect and and are and are entwined and 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 raise questions or or push up against each other. That is definitely true, but but these are distinct um, practices or, or activities. Um, disciplines, maybe. Sorry. Well, of course, disciplines. Yes, of course, there are different disciplines, uh, with different standards of of uh, of what is you know of how accuracy is measured or um, you know or or um, legitimacy is measured in in how one handles material. You know, yes. <laughs> Uh, but but not just disciplines, though. Um, I mean, one might say, and I, I don't mind uh, admitting it. You know, um, it has been said anyway that I'm neither a philosopher nor a historian. So I mean, by training. Um, so <laughs> there is an issue of what one does. Um, you know, pe- people oftentimes object, say, "Well, you know, what what is he doing here?" Uh, but I'm a person who thinks um, across the disciplines and. And um, is well versed in various disciplinary languages, and and that and that is my training. You know, um, comparative literature is my training, which is interdisciplinary by definition and multilingual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, so, um, so for me, the 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 difference between the the historical and the philosophical, let's say, those are just kind of code words. It's easy for me to think them together, to think in simultaneously in both modes. That's what I mean to say. Now, I'd like us to examine a little bit the, the plurality of dreaming that went into, uh, that joined into the national narrative. And I'd like to ask with the Ottoman era peasant communities. Uh, you know, when talking about them and talking about dreaming, I'm thinking of um, Zakran Scher's work, uh, who undertook an effort somewhat uh, eerily similar to yours, not, uh, not exactly in scope, but in, uh, you know, bringing together these social groups uh, along with um, uh, their and studying their imagination uh, in the 19th century. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of his book, The Proletarian Nights. Have you... Uh, where no, he I'm not, that? actually. I'm not. Well, uh, there he studies the dreams of uh, 19th century farmers and craftsmen in uh, mm-hmm. France. Uh, mm-hmm. And what he found was that behind the, the form, there, the specific form their dreams occupied, uh, they all expressed a will to be freed from the labor of everyday struggle. So... Uh, was there an underlying desire behind Ottoman era peasants' uh, dreams and imaginations of independence? And if so, what was it? 
So that's a great question. Um, of, as we know, the the uh, the eighteen twenty one revolution was was not the first event, uh, right, of rebellion or insurrection. Uh, there were many uh, of such events uh, in various parts of the empire, the Ottoman Empire, and not necessarily by by Greeks, right? Um, uh, so let's just establish the fact that. Uh, in every uh, in every society where there's power um, and hierarchy, and um, some people are oppressed by others, there will be uh, insurrectionary uh, moments. People will rebel against uh, um, their you know the the oppression uh, that they experience. So uh, there's nothing strange about that. That that just happens everywhere. Uh, at the same time. It's not fair to say that um, Greek peasants, you know, en masse um, in the Ottoman Empire uh, felt the need to rebel or uh, felt oppressed. Um, in fact, you know, there's so much historical material here, it's not my idea. I, I, I talk about it in the book. It, the relation of Greeks to Ottoman power was very complicated because, I, as I'm sure you know, uh, there were some Greek communities, cities, and and, and communities that had uh, that enjoyed a great deal of autonomy, or what we we call in in, in sort of political theory uh, relative autonomy. And um, in that process, they were engaged in all kinds of negotiations uh, with, uh, with, uh, with a with a sultan, you know, because that's of course the uh, the ultimate power. And um, and so it, it's not clear, nor nor let's say. Um, absolutely necessary by any kind of historical logic that the Greeks should have, uh, um, you know, uh, rebelled or in order to become independent. Um, or that that independent, that desire, let's say, for independence and um, and, and revolution would is really something that comes from the peasantry and only from the peasantry or from that kind of strata. It is a combination of things, including, there's no doubt about that, including um, the, the imagination and the vision of, uh, of, the, of a very privileged merchant class uh, that existed in, in various parts of the empire and, and, and also outside of the empire, uh, in a, or the Ottoman Empire and other empires, the Russian one uh, or, or, or in Western Europe or in the Austro-Hungarian one. And so, um, and they had their own interests in mind. Uh, and their ideas were would have been would be would be somewhat different, uh, and that we would the dif the degree of difference we would have to examine somewhat different from the peasants who lived in Arcadia, you know, in the Peloponnese. So it's it's not it, it, all of these things are are um, sort they're strange sort of conjunctures in history that make certain things happen that could never be predicted, uh, or or are in retrospect understood to not have been. Uh, strictly determined, meaning that they had to happen. Uh, there is no reason to think that the 1821, uh, you know, revolution had to happen. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, perfectly, <laughs> perfectly, actually. And, and I'm thinking of this uh, this thing that you mentioned that was actually uh, a merchant class that. Uh, uh, let's say they, they went for the the big gesture of the time, which was a revolution. Uh, and I'm thinking how all these uh, these things that you talk about in the book they come and they are they are tied on that maybe. So this is what leads the revolution per se, the merchants' uh, will. Let's say. Well, I don't. I never quite 
I never say that the origin of the, let's say, the, the national dream or, 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 or the imagination that leads to uh, national independence, uh, I never say that it has a, sing a single source. I, I am clearly interested in, in um, the ideas that were circulating. Uh, and I spend a lot of time discussing, discussing the, the phenomenon of the Greek Enlightenment, as it's called. Uh, which at the time when I, when I had written the book, and remember that this is like 30 years ago, uh, it wasn't really that discussed, apart, of course, from the great work of Cosadius uh, de Maras, who is, of course, the great historian of the Greek Enlightenment. And I, was in, I, I, I am interested in, 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 uh, in how ideas circulate and, and where they find a root. But by doing that, I'm also not suggesting that the... Uh, let's say the literate peasants uh, who, you know, did in essence most of the fighting um, were just simply, uh, I don't know, like mechanical uh, arms of, of some idea-driven thing. Like pawns. <laughs> like pawns, yeah, exactly. Hence my interest in Makarijanis, of course, and, 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 and uh, which is also a very important uh, part of the book. So, uh, but nor would I do the opposite. I would not fetishize, as it often happens, you know, the, the um, uh, you know, the Kleftes Karmatoli, you know, that kind of figure, you know, the, 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 the fighters the um, themselves, as if they are somehow sort of superhuman figures um, that just simply wanted Greece to be free. These things are not that simple. They're very complicated. And, uh, and let's, not, let's also not forget that several ideas that were part of this process were not materialized. The most important of which, I think, is the idea of uh, Rigas Fereos and, and his vision for a federation. He did not have a, a nation in mind uh, at all. He, he uh, and certainly what he had in mind involved a lot more people than, than just Greeks uh, um, who would come together uh, and form a federal um, um, entity, a federal state, uh, very much uh, inspired by uh, the American Revolution and, of course, the French Revolution. Uh, and that particular dream did not materialize. And um, who knows what would have happened if it had, right? And, and we also need to ask those questions, which are more speculative. Historians don't like those questions, but for me, they're important. Uh, parenthesis, you know, there is a, a phrase by Michel Foucault um, from one of his essays, I think, from the 70s, where he uh, he says that we must uh, consider what he says, the unrealized instances of history. And um, I think that's a fantastic notion as a kind of method uh, to think of what would have happened if that had happened as an exercise to understand what did happen, and also to deprivilege the fact that uh, what has happened is, you know, is the only thing that could have happened, uh, right? You understand? So, um, so let's keep. Let's not say that there's a specific source from which um, this desire uh, for self-determination or national independence emerged. It emerged from different sources with different interests. Uh, that came together under certain circumstances and produced a certain result, uh, which easily could not could have been otherwise.
You know, I think it makes perfect sense to me that you'd use this Michel Foucault quote because I can read this tension between what actually happened and what could have happened pretty much everywhere in your book. I see these dynamics playing out uh, um, everywhere. And it seems to me like this is also one of the readings you do on uh, the Greek Enlightenment thinkers that you mentioned, especially Kolaïs, where he comes out sounding like the, the first psychoanalyst of the dream nation, <laughs> ask, uh, yeah, asking from the collective dreamer to constantly struggle to interpret or gain knowledge, as you call it, of the dream. Uh, it, it was this the role of the thinkers? And how much was this uh, you know, implemented? How much this, uh, this came true? Well, yeah, I don't know if I can give you an answer on, on the on the how much question. I mean, I don't know if it's a quantitative answer that I can give, but uh, yeah, the Korais, uh, um, the the chapter on Korais is actually I'm very fond of. Uh, um, uh, it's been discussed very little uh, in all the discussions of, of, about the book that has given the least attention, even though uh, at the time certainly um, some of the stuff was really. Uh, intuitively groundbreaking. I'm not saying that I, uh, I, I had t- total control of the material, but it was intuitive gr- groundbreaking. And I was really responding to Corais's writings uh, more than anything into his own language, um, which I found fascinating. Um, uh, there is no doubt we know this. Of course, Corais understood himself as the the great teacher. You know, the the great the great pedagogue of the nation. Um, so much so that he developed a whole theory of language, um, which, in fact, you know, to a large extent, um, was established. The, the Katharebusa, uh, 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 you know, Greek, is owed to a large extent to Korais's efforts, uh, regardless of what we might say about it. So, um, and he understood he had very influenced, of course, by by the thinkers of his own era. Uh, you have to keep in mind. Sorry for the tangent, that Korais was incredibly prominent uh, in the circles, in intellectual circles in Paris, and internationally known. I mean, there's extensive correspondence between Thomas Jefferson, for example, uh, and uh, who was the president of the United States at the time, and and Korais. Um, I think they also he, actually met at some point. They physically yes, met when uh, Jefferson was was ambassador in uh, U.S. ambassador in Paris. Uh, during the, in fact, it was during the revolution, um, uh, which Corais, uh, of course, uh, was part of. I mean, he he witnessed it in real time in the streets, and and so um, he was a member of the uh, Société des Observateurs de l'Homme, uh, which is which is the first society of um, anthropology, I would say, in a kind of uh, literal sense, the study of humanity um, and what it involves, not just simply uh, in terms of different cultures. But as a whole, so it has a kind of, um, you know, universal imagination. Uh, he was connected to people who were um, at the at the top of Napoleon's um, intellectual elite uh, that Napoleon used during the Egyptian uh, expedition to study Egypt. Um, so Corais is is a is a, an incredibly prominent figure. Um, and so uh, much more, much more than we think in Greece. We don't really have a way of, if we don't know the context in which he was writing in Paris. We we don't really have a sense of how of his prominence. Um, did did his work ultimately get realized in in the in the national dream uh, after it was established? Uh, not really. I mean, it, it it certainly influenced it, but not really. I think. M- much of the Greek Enlightenment work didn't ultimately 
get translated into the practices of the new state, which mostly followed two tendencies. One was a certain romantic uh, element, um, and the other was a kind of militarist element, uh, obviously um, patterned uh, and in many ways controlled by uh, a, a kind of Prussian, you know, German sensibility. And and um, and so the that part of the encyclopedic enlightenment, um, which is mostly French in in origin, um, was not fully implemented. Uh, had Capodistria remained, of course, as governor for a lot longer, the story probably would have been different. Yeah, but we'll never know, I guess. We'll never uh, know. You know, it's uh, it's interesting though because you also mentioned this before that the, this conversation, every conversation about uh, modern Greece and its uh, its creation, actually always leads us back to the the great powers the, of the time. I mean, the European uh, states of the time, um, and now it's. Uh, The strongest desire for the creation of Greece uh, seems to have come from the nation states of Europe, like who needed Greece for their own, let's say, national dreaming in a way. And now, why did they need the reincarnation of antiquity in the shape of a country? <laughs> yes. Okay. So that that is uh, a core element of the book, and and an argument uh, that is probably the most influential of all the of all the arguments in the book. Um, obviously, beyond the Greek world, um, it's what I call the colonization of the ideal. Uh, it um, this is a bit of a history. If you give me a little time to give you um, before at a certain point in my life where where I, where I wasn't sure whether I would actually do my PhD and I was in Greece it was you know spent a couple of years interrupting my studies uh, between 1984 and 86 um, I read at the time Edward Said's uh, Orientalism that that extraordinary book um, which uh, which had a profound influence on me because I I saw in his argument my experience of Greece as a Greek Uh, was perfectly reflected in his argument, uh, and in a way that that also uh, uh, showed me that that the story of Greece is could be in his book, but he obviously didn't know it, and and it wasn't there. So that's what motivated me ultimately, uh, without really knowing at the time. Um, keep in mind, I'm just a student. Um, what I was getting into, um, and and where I would go, uh, and. Uh, I began to do some serious research in these things, and I discovered that um, the Orientalists uh, that Said talks about at great length, um, primarily, you know, British, French, and German, um, were it, were oftentimes the same exact people, or were involved with um, the people who um, who uh, created a whole edifice. Um, about uh, Greece, uh, you know, uh, about the ancient ideal first, and then um, by virtue, in, 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 in many cases of their own experience traveling through, the modern Greek reality. Uh, before, in the Ottoman era, and, and of course, uh, during the uh, War of Independence, and then, and then afterwards. So, um, why did the Europeans, um, why did European nations Um, engage, invest in ancient Greek ideal. Well, you know that the easy answer is that that it is very, very much part of their history, 
mediated, of course, by the significance of the Roman Empire and, and of the uh, of the Latin tradition, uh, which was, of course, based so much on the Greek world, as we know, the ancient one, I mean. So um, when these societies begin to seek um, a certain kind of liberation from, uh, you know, thousands of years, at least, of um, what we call the medieval era, um, but it's but it's a little more than that, and they seek a certain kind of modernity. All of all these languages, of course, are retrospective, right? Um, the the they discover that in, in ancient Greek thought, um, which was of course pagan, not Christian, uh, there were certain elements um, that were liberating. I'm I'm giving you something that's very very. Simplistic account, right, of what is a very well-known story. Sounds accurate um, enough, though. <laughs> sorry. Sounds accurate enough, though. Yes, yes. It, it, I'm kind of compressing, but in any case, so starting with the Renaissance and ongoing, um, the interest in a, uh, in ancient Greek everything, uh, not just, of course, philosophy and 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 poetry, you know, but but uh, as we know, art and and um, and sculpture and everything. Um, begins to to become uh, uh, the most dominant mode of thought. And as this develops during the Enlightenment, um, you see it more and more. Now, in some cases, they're they're not all equivalent. Uh, For for a country like France, for example, because of the language and the Catholicism, the connection to Rome is much more prominent. So so during the French Revolution, for example, uh, and even before in in figures like Rousseau, etc., um, there is um, there's more attention to let's say Roman signs and 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 images uh, of the Roman Republic, right? Um, but not so in the case of the of the English and the Germans, particularly of course the Germans, who were trying to distinguish themselves um, against their adversaries, the British and the French. Um, uh, who had, especially the French during the Napoleonic Wars, had just basically swept to Germany, which didn't really even exist as German. So um, at that particular point, you see this incredible obsession, I would call it, a kind of almost libidinal investment in things Greek, um, the kinds of things that these amazing thinkers in Germany write are quite extraordinary about Greeks. Uh, and they see themselves as Germans to be the Greeks of today. Um, we know what consequences this this kind of thinking had, uh, but um, in any case, the the, the a, a, a certain need emerged to create to use the myth of ancient Greece as a foundational myth for European modernity, um, which is old is still the case today, and and um, at that point a discrepancy occurs. Um, you know the Greeks of today, of the 18th and 19th century. What what do they have to do with these incredible, you know, ancients who, after all, were in you know the epitome of human perfection? Uh, the answer it was very easy: nothing. Um, you know, there is no connection to that, you know, to them whatsoever, etc., uh, etc. Et but the myth of Greece as a as an ideal um, is definitely a motivating factor in how the Europeans. Um, invested and supported uh, the insurrectionary sentiments of certain uh, modern Greeks and so on. At the same time, uh, the second component, um, 
which is incredibly important, is a, a kind of po political and economic self-interest, which is part of the colonial aspirations uh, of all of these, um, um, you know, European uh, nations, and uh, particularly the British, actually, perhaps more than more than the others in this case, because they needed to disrupt Ottoman power uh, in order to consolidate their own control of the territory between the eastern colonies, uh, you know, basically India and all that, you know, part of the world, uh, and 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 uh, of course the metropolis. And so, the a, a, a small a small insurrection by um, some people within uh, the Ottoman Empire um, can be very useful. Uh, and uh, well, all the more so if they are Greeks. Then the Greek ideal kicks in, and then you know the whole. It's just whole mobilization happens. Uh, so again, there's ne not a single cause, uh, not a single source. There, uh, it's heterogeneous uh, how uh, it happens. But but there's a, a, a kind of a intersection of interests, a kind of conjuncture, and and uh, as a result, to finish this very long uh, <laughs> account, um, you know, modern Greece is always was. First of all, its its independence was brokered by the European powers. We know that, and and it was always in the hands of the European powers, um, and, it, and, and it still is, uh, because of you know it does not have the capacity to uh, to withstand the what is colonial and imperial power of an extraordinary magnitude, uh, and um, the Greeks themselves, uh, you know, us in this case, uh, we are caught in this in a profound way because um, we internalized the, um, the power of the Hellenic ideal, the ancient ideal, uh, and we tried as much as we could to figure out ways to present ourselves as, as, as modern Greeks to be of equal status or, or to be the offspring of this uh, great civilization. And, and, uh, you to know, live up to the ideal. <laughs> Sorry? To live up to the ideal. Right, and you you can you you know very well you know the dangers of that, and and what that created, the troubles that it created, um, you know the the anxiety the 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 weight you know with which uh, people you know tried to live, especially in the early uh, in the nineteenth century as they were forming, um, which the Europeans always exploited, and they still do. Um, so to come back to Orientalism, there is a um, First of all, you know, mo you know, contemporary Greeks to the Europeans uh, were really Orientals, uh, and were seen no different than, than the Turks or 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 the Arabs or or the Indians. You know, going further east, they're really basically the same. They're not really Europeans. They're they're they have nothing to do with uh, um, that kind of. Um, there's a certain racism involved in this, of course. Um, you know, that kind of superior um, uh, race and and. Um, the the whole discipline of classics and the whole discipline of of, uh, of philology and studying the ancient Greek world, which is essential to all European education, was uh, conducted um, created as a discipline by the same people who created Orientalism as a discipline, who studied the languages, the Semitic languages, or 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 uh, you know the religions of the East uh, and so on and so forth, and had. Uh, created a whole structures of how to interpret and and then dominate those societies. 
So if, if we think of it that way, then Philhellenism is not uh, is not a, um, a phenomenon that we should that we should adore and, and applaud as as it's happening. God, in the last few days, is this obsession with with this again? Um, it's our desire to to get approval from our you know European masters in a way. Sorry to put it that way, but it is. Uh, Philhellenism is a very complex uh, formation that has a very dark underside. Uh, one which uh, may have helped liberate Greece, but also um, uh, has created uh, structures that, that have damaged it in the process. You know, it's funny because this tension between um, Orientalism and Classicism and these proje- projections over Greece, they, they pretty much are still active to this day. I mean, you just uh, uh, you just mentioned this about the, the celebration of the Bicentennial. And uh, w- one could say actually that the conflict between the two is still the, the way that, that Greekness is largely discussed and uh, negotiated. Uh, could this maybe prove that the Greek national identity was never actually, I don't know, solidified? No, I don't think it is solidified. Uh, although it suffers, um, it suffers from this tension, um, and it will always. I don't. I think that's insurmountable. The kind of, uh, as I said uh, in the book, the 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 going back and forth between a, a kind of uh, xenophilia and xenophobia pertaining uh, to um, the Europe. Um, the 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 question: Are we Western or are we Eastern? Um, that stuff will never be overcome, I think. Um, but but doesn't mean that it's not solidified. Yeah, I'm sorry, if I forgot now. Was the first part of your thought? Your question. My, my first part is that uh, you know this uh, this thing between um, being the, the, the uh, you know. Uh, This self-orientalism uh, of sorts, the, yes. the way that we we actually in Greece is very common to hear in public discourse, for example, that uh, it's our bad Eastern character versus our good Western character, um, which uh, you know makes us good or bad Greeks. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, of course. Yeah, to this to this day, and I was curious about this uh, dynamic. How has it survived for this long? I mean, it's two hundred years. It's a lot. I think I think it's I, I think it's insurmountable. I think it's ingrained. I don't know how it can be overcome, really, believe me. I mean, obviously, you know, um, the more, um, you know, an anti-nationalist like me, uh, I'm anti-nationalist across the board, you know, not, you know, only in the Greek case, uh, might have an advantage of being able to have a cooler mind in, in, in being able to measure these things and, and not get caught in this trap. Meaning, I know, oh, and I'm, Pardon me for speaking personally, but I know what aspects of me are um, Western, in quotation marks, uh, since I was a child and the way I was brought up, and how many aspects of me are, again, quotation marks, Eastern, again, based on the way that I was raised and, and grew up. And um, and I can handle that, that tension without a problem. But I don't think that we can say that generally because it is it is an unresolvable tension. And also, we are constantly, you know, interpolated by it. I mean, think of all those, um, you remember the, 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 during the Greek, uh, the economic, the debt crisis, um, the, uh, the, the famous um, covers of, the, of the, the German magazines and the, the, um, the absolutely shameful um, depiction of Greeks as, um, these cartoonish depictions of Greeks as non-Europeans or as, as uh, 
you know, uh, trouble for for the dream of Europe uh, as inadequate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and uh, um, and and at the same time, I don't remember that. What was that cover where where um, was uh, um, the um, uh, statue of Aphrodite, right? Where yeah, where, with the finger, uh, the finger. Yes, yes, mm. yes. So it was that, a German magazine. Perfect. I can't remember which one. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a German German magazine Focus. Um, so that's a perfect indication, it, it, and and uh, that they are still doing this, and they will not stop doing this. So uh, because for them, they also have the tension. They also have. Um, the, it's also insurmountable for them. The Germans will never rid themselves of uh, being um, sort of self-enslaved to the Greek ideal. I mean, they created it. It's not, you know. Uh, but they, they can't get around it. They will never be able to get around it. It's, it's fundamental to their cultural formation. Uh, so to the degree that Germans will continue to exist, they'll have this problem. To the degree that Greeks continue to exist, they'll have this problem. Uh, it's only how it can be negotiated. Um, if we go back to Freud, it's like an erotic phenomenon. It just needs to be handled. But it, I don't think it can be cured, if I can use that language, you know, always carefully, as I said before. Yeah, it could be that is now inscribed in the. Maybe this unresolved tension is part of the architecture of the the concept of Europe itself nowadays. It's maybe absolutely. It looks. It, it may. It might be more normalized than we think. In, uh, in a way, absolutely. Absolutely, uh, I, I I would say the same. Yeah, I, I want to ask you something else about this. Um, first of all, you mentioned you mentioned back in, in your book back in the day that uh, it, it is conspicuous that Orientalism, uh, the study of Orientalism, has never been applied in the case of modern Greece. Has this changed at all since then? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the my argument has been taken up by other uh, uh, thinkers since then. I mean, uh, particularly people who are studying more specifically archaeology, you know, the history of archaeology in Greece as a field, or um, or uh, you know, folklore, or um, certain elements uh, in even in, in history. You know, how Greek historians um, narrate you know, themselves as Greeks and, and Greece and so on. So, uh, that has been discussed. I don't think that, that the, uh, that Orientalism, which was translated in Greek, uh, rather late compared to its other, the other translations. I, had, I in fact, brokered the translation, uh, back in the day. Um, but because I knew Said very intimately, uh, the I don't think so because I think I think people most Greek scholars are not familiar with Said's work, uh, not extensively familiar w- with the work, and and also it's a broader thing than that maybe. Uh, I think that it's difficult from the Greek standpoint to fully understand um, the colonial and imperial dimensions of European and, and, and of course, American, Euro-American history. I think, I think it's very hard to understand that um, uh, and, and how it's still in play in every aspect of what we call globalization uh, and, and global capital. And so um, the most important thing for me in writing this book was, in retrospect, and in this, I was totally fortunate. It happened by chance. Uh, was that I, I I happened to be in a in a in a in a in a circle of of peers of thinkers, young thinkers, who came from all kinds of parts of the world, 
this would only ha- this was only possible because I was I was educated in the universities in American universities at the time in the 1980s, uh, which were these incredible centers of of people coming from everywhere in the world, and and I was and I was able to understand myself as a Greek and and my history in a in in inside a huge network of other histories that were all connected and not as something special and exceptional and and singular and um this experience uh, and uh, which contributed to my thinking not only in terms of this book but in, in everything that i've done since then it's very much part of my thinking and i think that's not something that can happen easily for a Greek who, who you know, whose knowledge, which could be grand, you know, in erudition. I'm not doubting that, but whose knowledge is is comes from within Greece primarily. <laughs> uh, and even let's say someone who might be in, educated in England, I'm just saying, or in France, um, they may, you know, uh, there are very few people who, uh, you know, because I know many of them very, very, very well, of my generation, older and, 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 and younger too, who being educated in France or in England might achieve this perspective. They might connect to French national history or English national history and all, all of that. They may know the languages perfectly, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't mean that their perspective of Greece or what it means to be Greek is understood in that uh, um, complex network that I call colonial and imperial um, uh, history. So um, I think that might be one, one explanation. <laughs> no, no, it's funny because you, you know you mentioned uh, in your book Sillard James the Black uh, Jacobin, and since it's um, yes. uh, since it's a book that uh, funnily enough we talk we end up talking about every week on Movelt Radio. Uh, you you wrote that it will be useful to apply its findings in the history of the Greek Revolution. So picking up from what you just said, uh, what would we learn? So okay, you realize I wrote this you know in nineteen I don't know what was it eighty eighty nine or something. Uh, Um, because I had, uh, you know, Jamaican uh, uh, colleagues and um, Indian uh, colleagues who, for whom this book mattered a great deal in, you know, the, in what was then emerging post-colonial studies, and I read it. And uh, um, other people have written about this, of course, much better than me. Two things we can we can learn from it. Um, first of all, the book. Okay, not I'll get to the event too, but. But the book itself is one of the most extraordinary books ever written, because it is a history of of the revolution in Haiti and the, and subsequently uh, the whole national independence. Uh, but it's written in in a way that it reads like a like a novel. Um, it has a pr- profound understanding of myth, and and of course of tragedy as as a structure, and that's because Cyril James was so well versed in uh in in his uh, ancient greek uh, learning having had you know not surprising a british colonial education right and he had <laughs> learned this since he was a child but he was so attuned to to um to the lessons of ancient greece and particularly the tropes of tragedy uh that he could um you know read a certain history um um as a tragedy unfolding very similar to um, of course the the 1821 to 1830 period which is the 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 revolutionary period in Greece where as we know very well but we really have not no one has narrated quite like the black jacobins uh, most of the time Greeks were fighting each other 
uh, and 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 uh, engaged in all kinds of tragedies uh, in 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 retrospect uh, that um, that w were kind of covered over uh, by independence, which, as you said before, would never not have happened if it wasn't for the uh, European powers that came in to make it happen for their own interest. Uh, but there's also something else that has to do with the event itself. Um, the the Haitian Revolution is uh, one of the greatest world events um, because it, it was the first slave revolt that was done, was conducted on, on the basis of the ideals of the American and the French Revolution. The French being, of course, the colonizers of the island at the time. So the, slave, the black slaves, the African slaves, rebel against their masters by taking from their masters all of the ideas about liberation and, and, and emancipation of humanity that their masters, uh, um, you know, um, you know, espouse. And, um, and the, as we know, the French National Assembly, the Revolutionary Assembly, was quite divided over this matter. Uh, some of the revolutionaries behaved as the, as the worst colonizers, therefore violating their own principles. Others said, this, these are our principles, these people um, are, 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 have every right to the same, and so on. Um, and, and, and Haiti was the first, uh, after the French Revolution, is the first revolution to lead to national independence. Greece is the second. Uh, I'm talking with, with in, in, in historical time. And um, it's not surprising that this has become, these days, very fashionable, and everybody's referring to it, that the Haitian government uh, uh, sent a uh, hundred fighters uh, to fight in the, you know, in the Revolutionary War, who of course died at sea in a very, yet another tragic uh, uh, moment. Um, but do Greeks, do Greek children, uh, are, are they ever, you know, taught the history of Haiti? Uh, do, do Greeks really know uh, about the fabulous, uh, this fabulous revolution? Do they, have they read the, the Black Jacobins? I don't think the Black Jacobins has even been translated into Greek, has it? It hasn't, no. <laughs> no. Uh, so, you know, the book is of incredible significance. And when he, he does the second edition, because it's published in the 1930s, okay, um, he, it's in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, and he has a, the preface that he writes uh, about that is, of course, incredibly significant. He's saying here is another island in the Caribbean uh, that is uh, continuing this kind of uh, struggle and so on and so forth. It, it, so anyway, um, so that, that is a good a, a example of what I'm, what I'm talking about. I think that in order for all people within their purview of their national identity, for all people to come to terms with what are the problems of the nation within which they're they're kind of uh, they they come they come into being and and understand themselves to be Greeks French uh, Haitians or what have you uh, the, the the best way to, to handle all that to handle the national dream which we all dream is to be able to understand it um, in in a much larger context never think of it as unique or exceptional. Um, there's nothing exceptional in history ever. I am really hardcore on this issue. I will ask for a very, a very, very brief answer because we've almost run out of time. But why yes. do you think that historians of modern Greece uh, have not, uh, have only rarely applied the tools of uh, anti-colonial or post-colonial theory in studying Greek, Greek history? Why is what you just described happening? I don't think. I don't. I, I think from what I said is that they don't have the experience. First of all, 
the social experience. It's not just about education, because you can read books. Uh, I mean, people, you know, the Greek historians that I admire, you know, they, they, um, uh, um, they've read Said's Orientalism. It's not that they don't know it. Uh, but it's not so easy to think in those terms. It's happening, by the way, I should say that it is happening now more and more, and, and probably uh, there will be, um, it is something that eventually will be achieved. But, uh, but it requires a certain kind of perspective, and that kind of perspective, I think, sometimes might come from, ex- from life experience, um, in which, as I say, I was fortunate to have had. It's not because... You know, I am exceptional in any way. Okay, on, and on that note, Stasgur Boris, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. It was my pleasure, thank you. Mm-hmm.